Good morning. Good to see you guys. I uh, especially want to welcome those of you who think this is the 9.30 service. <laughs> it can be a funny thing sometimes. Glad you're here. How many of you wrestle with expectations? How many of you wrestle with, you know, maybe it's, it's the family that you grew up in and you feel like the, the expectations were just way too high for what you could achieve. Maybe it's where you work, that you work in a situation where you feel like expectations are too high. Maybe it's even school if you're a student and you feel like, I just cannot reach that. I, I wanna talk a little bit about expectations, about where we set the bar this morning. And um, I do wanna clarify before we begin that um, this is a high jump bar, not a limbo bar. There's been some confusion over the weekend, two drastically different outcomes when you're talking about limbo and high jump. High jump bar, stay with me. All right, I, I wanna talk to moms for just a minute. Uh, and not that um, I have any experience in that area, except that I have one, and my wife is one. And I wanna talk a little bit about the expectations that moms face. If, if this was, let's say this is you know, a healthy, realistic expectation, a functioning bar for what it is to be a good mom. I feel like it's continued to be lifted. It is continuing to be lifted higher and higher and higher until it's untainable. And um, I blame Facebook for that and maybe Pinterest a little bit because of the things that, that you can read. And so maybe you wake up in the morning and the first post that you read is somebody saying, you know, uh, jog seven miles this morning, now I'm home feeding the kids a hot breakfast. And you're like, whoa, that's a, that's a tough expectation, right? You know, pack the kids' lunches, dropped them off at school, volunteering in class, knitting scarves for orphans, attending Bible study. You know, it just keeps going and going and going until it's just absolutely up here and unattainable. Bought $47 worth of groceries for $2.50. <laughs> Woo, you know, good for you. And, and the hard part is, is that we compare ourselves at our worst to everybody else's highlight reel, right? You can compare yourself at your worst to everybody else's Facebook post and they're like, saving harbor seals today, playing in Carnegie Hall, baking 30 minute brownies in 20 minutes, woo. You know, just all this kind of, the bar gets raised and if you're a mom, it's difficult for you, you know, it's just so high, it's so unattainable that you're just like, I cannot meet that expectation. Now, if you wanna look at that from the other side, where does the bar rest for fathers? Fathers who have to stay home and watch their children. If we were to place this bar somewhere, <laughs> we might place it there. Because dads are like, well, got up, house is still standing. <laughs> Nothing's on fire, and the kids are alive. <laughs> Thank you very much. Right? That's... That's fathers. You're like, breakfast, I don't know, chips, fruit snacks, and an ice cream sandwich. You go. Going to lunch at McDonald's so I don't have to cook. Kids are in the playland. Two of them are in middle school. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the bar is low, and, and I, it's a sliding scale, and it's not fair, even though it's not fair in my favor. It's still not exactly fair. What do we do with the expectations that are set for us? What do we do for that bar that we can or cannot get over? And I wanna talk about that this morning. I wanna talk about the standard that's set for all of us and what our response to that should be. Before we dive in, let's just open in a word of prayer. Jesus, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and powerful. 
and that it speaks to us. And I pray that you would change us through your word for your glory today. So spirit, move in this place uniquely as you do. Jesus, we wanna just be conformed to your character. In your name, amen. We're gonna be in Hebrews chapter nine this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And uh, if you just wanna grab one out of the pew, it's on page 1916, 16, excuse me. And we're continuing in our series, Stay With Jesus. And, and at this point in the series, it might sound to you like a broken record, uh, or for a younger generation, a skipping CD, if you will. But this better, you keep hearing this phrase, in chapter seven, in chapter eight, in chapter nine, and in chapter 10, it's all about better, 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 where Jesus is better than the old system. Jesus is better than the high priest. Jesus serves in a temple that is better. Jesus' sacrifice is so much better. And last week we talked about how the covenant of Jesus, and that covenant being just that agreement that kind of defines relationship between God and us, right? The covenant, the new one that Jesus ratified is so much better than the old one. And we talked about that last week, and we also had shadow puppets last week if you missed it. It was really good. Uh, the podcast just does not do them justice. But there were four I will statements that we talked about with this new covenant where God says, I will make a new covenant where he's saying, I'm going to change this relationship for the better. I'm gonna make it new. And I'm gonna write my laws on your hearts. I'm gonna give you this deeper level of understanding that you've never had before. And I will be your God, which means there's a whole sense of intimacy and, and approachability to God that there has never been before. And then the last one was, I will forgive and I will remember your sins no more. This sense of that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this better covenant, we need to understand this, this better covenant was completed, it was, it was ratified, it was secured by the final and perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That Jesus' sacrifice, his life, his death, and his resurrection, it's what makes all of this better. All of it's better because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, we're gonna be in chapter nine, and I want you to understand that chapter nine has a lot of stuff in it. So much so that in verse five, the author of Hebrews says this, we cannot explain these things in detail now. And so I figure if the author of Hebrews can say that, I can say that. There's a lot of stuff in here. We cannot explain all of this stuff in detail now. You don't wanna be here that long, right? There's a lot of stuff in here, but what the chapter is about is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. You see it again and again and again in chapter nine. Verse 14, excuse me, says, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Verse 15, Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sin. Verse 26, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. Verse 28, Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. That Christ came as our perfect sacrifice to take away these sins. And, and before we jump into this, let's give a little background. When God created everything in the beginning, we know that God created us so that he could have a relationship with us. In the beginning, we know that God walked with Adam and Eve and how amazing that must have been to walk with God. But we know that at some point, Adam and Eve walked away from God. 
That they, they bought into this lie that Satan told them that we still buy into today. God's holding out on you. There's something better for you that you're missing. Go, go grab it. Take hold of it yourself. And, and what they did is, is what we continue to do. We feel like, ah, maybe I know what's better for me, or I will go grab hold of this myself. I will do this better thing. And so they walked away from God. Now, God created us for relationship, but that relationship was severed. It was separated, and so God needed to have restoration happen, right? How do sinful people approach a holy God? Well, there has to be a system in place. And so God created a system where sinful people could approach him. And we read, when we studied Leviticus, all of these ways. This ABC book of holiness. You need to do these things. That's how God wants us to approach him. You see, God desires relationship, but he's also particular about how we approach him. I don't know if you saw recently, uh, Michelle Obama hugged the Queen of England. And um, it just caused the people of England to be aghast. As a matter of fact, it spurred the headline, Holy Crumpets. Michelle hugs the queen. And, and the reason is, is, is for generations, written in stone was this protocol. You don't touch the queen. You never touch the queen. Don't touch the queen. As a matter of fact, at, at one of these state dinners, the Australian prime minister came up next to the queen and he kind of put his arm on her back to talk to her. And they, they called him the Lizard of Oz from then on. <laughs> like that reptile touched the queen. You don't touch the queen. That's the protocol. Remember a few years ago when that couple who was trying to get their own reality TV show crashed a White House dinner? They, they got through two security checkpoints where their name wasn't on it at all. They got through a photo ID checkpoint when their name wasn't on the list. And they got all the way in and had their pictures taken with the president. And everybody was like, you don't do that. You can't just crash the White House. You don't just show up at the White House and, what's for lunch? Right? There's a certain protocol for approaching the president. There's a certain protocol for approaching the queen. There is a certain way that God wants us to approach him. And listen, it's not because God is stuffy. And it's not because God's hung up on any kind of ceremony. It's because God is holy. And how do we, as sinful people, approach a holy and pure and indescribable God? There has to be a system, there, there has to be a standard, and we understand that, that God sets that standard. And as we read in Leviticus, uh, it's in chapter 11, it's in chapter 19, it's in chapter 20, where God starts to say, okay, here's some things that you do. Here's some ways for you to be holy. Here's some things to do to approach me, where he says, you need to be holy because I am holy. So, so God sets the bar, and it's up there. Jesus comes along, and in Matthew uh, chapter 5, he says, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the bar that's set for us, the standard that's set for us is perfection. It's an impossibly high standard, right? How many of you are perfect? Okay, good. <laughs> right? We can't meet that. We read last week in Hebrews chapter 8 that, you know, the fault's not with the standard that God set. The fault's not with the law. The, the fault's with us. We can't reach that standard. We can't keep it. We can't get over it. Which begs the question, well, then why doesn't God just lower the standard? Why doesn't God just bring it down? I mean, in our own lives, we tend to lower the standard. 
we want to bring the standard down to a manageable level, right? And so we kind of create our own standard. We say things like, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm basically a good person. I mean, I do some stuff wrong, but not all that much stuff wrong. And so we've taken this standard that we've gotten somewhere from teachers or pastors or books that we've read or movies that we've watched. And we create things and, and certain phrases kind of creep into our, our vocabulary like tolerance is right, exclusivity is wrong. You know, helping others is good, hurting them is bad. Choice is good, restrictions aren't that good. We start kind of creating our own standard, our own morality. Ted Turner, the media mogul, decided that the Ten Commandments uh, were archaic and out of date, and he doesn't really even believe in the Bible, so he created his own Ten Commandments, Ted's Ten. He actually calls them the Voluntary Initiatives, my Ten Voluntary Initiatives. And, and I, it's so arrogant to rewrite the Ten Commandments. I'm just like, oh, no, you didn't. Um, there's certain things on here, that, and some of this is good, and some of it, you know, he, one of them is he says, I promise to have no more than two children, um, he has five. That one's gone. But there's good stuff. I promise to treat people with dignity. I promise to respect planet Earth. Uh, it's fuzzy, uh, you know, but good. I, I pledge to use as little uh, non-renewable resources as possible. I pledge to use as little toxic chemicals as possible. And you're like, how did that make your 10, top 10? Um, I reject the use of force. There's, there's all kind of things on there, some good and some bad. But the problem is is that they're fuzzy at best. When we create our own standard, when we set the bar where we think it should be, it's fuzzy, it's squishy, right? And, and we do that, don't we? I mean, we wanna take the bar here and we wanna kinda drop it to where it kinda suits us. And we do that in various ways. You know, every time I see a speed limit sign, I add five. <laughs> I don't know if that's you or not, I'm just being honest. For me, Every time I see a number, it's like plus five. 35 plus five, whatever, right? That's my standard. It's not the law, but it's my standard. Maybe at work you have this, well, you know, some of these resources at work, it's fine if I take these. You know, the company I work for won't miss these things. Maybe on your taxes, you know, some of these numbers don't exactly work out, but the government has a lot more money than I have. Maybe you're the person that takes 12 items into the 10 items or less lane. <laughs> Maybe that's you, right? But the standard, the standard job, I mean, God couldn't have meant perfection, could he? And so what we do is we lower it to the point where we can kind of step over. Where, where the things that we do aren't bad, it's the things that other people do. This is where we get caught up in this comparison game. Not like the beginning. You, you don't want to compare yourself to those above you. That's not a good comparison for you at all. You compare yourself to the people lower than you. You're like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. We lower it to the point where we can step over it. But here's the danger. When we lower the bar, when it gets to this point here and we can step over it, we lose our need for a savior. We lose our need for sacrifice because we've taken this standard and we've made it manageable. And we say things like, I can do it myself because that's who we are. We are independent people and we can do things ourselves. 
My first day of kindergarten, my mom tells me this story quite often. She walks me out of the house, holds my hand, we get out into the front of the house, and I throw her hand off of me, and I say, I can do it myself. She's like, you broke my heart that day. (laughs) And I'm like, mom, I'm four. I can walk to school by myself, right? I can do it myself. You know how parents say, I hope when you're older, you have children that are just like you? (laughs) Which, by the way, is never spoken as a blessing. (laughs) It's always spoken as a curse, right? First day of school for my daughter. uh, I drive her to school, and I get out of the car, and I walk around to her door, and she's looking at me like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm going to walk you into school. You don't need to do that. (laughs) Yes, I do. Well, let me walk you to the door. Well, don't walk me inside. (laughs) Right? And then she says this, I can do it myself. (laughs) So I called my mom and apologized. (laughs) Right? But do you have that sense of, "I I can do it myself. See, when we put it here, do we even understand that we need a sacrifice? Do do we know that? So why doesn't then God just lower the standard? Why doesn't God just take the standard and leave it there? Here's the deal. The standard has to be impossibly high. He has to take the standard, and he has to make it perfection. Because if he doesn't make it perfection, then our position becomes based on our performance. Then it's, I can do it myself. Then it's, look what I did. And there's some bad things with this. First, Jesus doesn't receive any of the glory. See, it it ceases to become about Jesus and it becomes about what we can do. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter two, you have been saved by grace, not by your own efforts so that you don't brag or boast so that you're not prideful about it. It's all about the work that Jesus does on our behalf. So the standard has to be absolutely impossibly high. I could spend all day trying to jump over this bar. It's not gonna happen. The standard has to be that high. But don't look at this as as a barrier because this is a blessing because thankfully God didn't lower the bar. What he did was he sent his son to be sacrificed on our behalf so that through his sacrifice we would be carried over the bar. And the blessing of that is it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about the work that he did. It's not about us. Look at uh, verse nine there. The second part of it there says, for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. There was an old system. It had a lot of ceremony to it. You went through the motions, you did your thing, and you were ceremonially clean, but it didn't affect the inside and it didn't last. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a young cow, could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. 
Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. With the coming of Christ, God's master plan, is, is, it's coming together, it's coming to fruition. Everything is going to be placed right again, but I understand that it's difficult to talk about sacrifice. We don't like to talk about sacrifice because the concept seems so primitive. It seems archaic, right? I mean, we don't hurt animals, we save animals. That's why at the end of our movies we say, no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. We blew up 17 cars, demolished three buildings. People were strewn from one end to the other, but we didn't hurt the animals. No animals were harmed during the making of this movie, right? We protect the animals. We don't sacrifice the animals, but this is even taking it a step further. We know the old system was about animal sacrifice, but the new, in order to be completed, had a human sacrifice. And wow, that just really seems to stretch us, doesn't it? I mean, nowhere in Jewish literature of the time of the Bible and beyond is human sacrifice condoned. Nowhere in scripture is human sacrifice condoned. We find one story in Genesis 22 where God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And if you're familiar with the story, he gets all the way and he gets ready to do it, but God provides an escape. God provides an animal sacrifice. And we know that that was pointing forward to Jesus, but for Jesus to lay down his life and sacrifice for us is a big deal. And we have to remember that amazing truth in John 10, verse 18, where Jesus says this, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to pick it up. Christ laid down his life voluntarily for us. It, it wasn't taken from him, it was given. There's, there's some elements that uh, kind of surround this mystery of what sacrifice is. There's three elements. One is you give what is valuable. You offer something valuable, and this is this trust in God. God, I give you my best because I trust that you will continue to provide for me. The second element is, is blood. It's the life of this sacrifice being poured out in the blood. It's God saying, I will rescue you uh, because one life is given for another. This life is given so that you can live, right? It says that in Leviticus chapter 17. It's the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible, that there has to be blood in this sacrifice. And the third thing is, is that your sins are forgiven. There's this newness. There's this fresh start that happens. And so if you look at the sacrifice of Jesus, how does it meet that? Well, it, it meets that and so much more, so much more beyond. It's so much better and richer and deeper and fuller than you can imagine. I mean, as far as offering what you have that is most valuable, how can you overstate the value of Jesus? What could be more valuable? This past week I was um, searching, you know, there's great sacrifice stories that we hear about all the time and I was like, well, maybe there's a great war one I could use or a parent or something like that where somebody gave their life for another and every story that I looked at just seemed to pale in comparison to Jesus sacrificing himself for us. 
God's son who is eternal and never tasted death and never had separation in his supreme over everything. How can you overstate that? How could there be a more valuable sacrifice than that of Jesus? The second element that he met obviously was the blood, that Christ shed his blood to make everything right once and for all. And we know that Christ's blood is the basis of this new covenant. And we talk about that when we have communion. And Jesus said it in Luke 22. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. That Christ shed his blood as a sacrifice for us. And without that, like it says in verse 22 here of chapter 9, there would be no forgiveness of our sins. You see, a holy and infinite God requires a holy and infinite sacrifice, and there really was only one holy and infinite sacrifice. Nothing else could have fit that criteria except for Jesus. And really, the blood points to a deeper truth, because at the heart of this sacrificial system lies the self-giving love of God. That you understand that God gave of himself so that we could live. That's amazing. And you know, he created us with this in mind. You know, it didn't happen in the garden. It, didn't, it wasn't like God created everything and then Adam and Eve sinned and then God went, oh, now what do I do? Like, oh, what, what's plan B? Where am I going from here? No, the Bible tells us in Revelation 13, 8 that Christ was, was slain. He was the sacrifice from the foundation of the world, which means that when God created all of this, when Jesus created all of this, he knew that he would be that sacrifice, that he would shed his blood so that we can live. He created us knowing what he would walk through so that we could have relationship with him. That's the new covenant. The third thing is, is this, this kind of fresh and this new, and, and we understand that, that ritual doesn't always bring renewal. And we know that they were locked into this old system that had them going through the motions, going through the motions. And you know what it's like when you go through the motions, sometimes you can get in trouble. My father-in-law not too long ago tells a story about how he woke up one morning and he had stayed up late and he was tired in the morning and he was just like you do maybe most mornings. You just go through this routine that you just know what you have to do. And he's like, yeah, I went in, looked in the mirror and grabbed the tube, put it on there, brushed and I knew something wasn't quite right, but I wasn't quite awake and put it down and just got busy with other things. About an hour later, I'm like, my mouth tastes funny. So he goes back into the bathroom and he checks the tube, preparation H. <laughs> he's not here this morning, so I can share that story. Maybe he's listening to the podcast later. But we know that that ritual, that routine, it doesn't bring life. That's why it says in verse 14, it says that the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds, which literally in the Greek means dead works. He's gonna purify us from the dead works so that we can serve the living God. That he wants to take all of this routine and all of this ceremony and all this dead stuff, all this outer stuff away from us so that we can start fresh and new. So that his truth will come into our hearts. So his truth will come into our consciences, our holy of holies, if you will, on the inside and change us so that we can be fresh. 
The sacrifice of Christ is what takes us from death to life. It's what carries us over the standard that we could not perform on our own. 13 years ago, my wife was pregnant with our first child, and uh, things were going fairly well. Um, but the day that happened to be delivery day, it was kind of a rough uh, morning, so we rushed to the hospital, and uh, she delivered uh, our baby girl, and everything was, was good for a moment. You, you know, healthy baby. And this is kind of one of those best day, worst day stories uh, for me. Healthy baby girl. And then all of a sudden, everything kind of started to go wrong in the delivery room. And, and the monitors that were hooked up to my wife started to make funny sounds. And the lines started to get flatter. And, and my wife looked at the doctor and she said, I feel like I'm floating. And then the doctor screamed at her, no, you're not, and hit this button. And, and uh, this other alarm sound went off and all these nurses rush in with all of these instruments and she grabs my arm and she kicks me out of the room. You can't be in here for this. And so she puts me next door into this room right next to my wife and I am literally crying out to God and saying, God, I don't know what to do. God, there's nothing that I can do. How can I rescue? I, I like to do things on my own. I like to solve problems. I like to be independent. I can do it myself, but in this moment, I've got nothing. God, I need you to save. I need you to rescue. I do not know what to do. My wife went from delivery to intensive care for seven days where they performed test after test after test after test and had no idea what was wrong. And she was showing signs of improvement, but they still weren't sure what happened. They were, weren't sure what was going on. And so they released us from the hospital with this, uh, you'll be on your back for six months. You won't be able to walk. God, I need you to rescue. I need you to do something that I can't do. We couldn't do it on our own. Two months later, as God is just restoring my wife in amazing ways, both of us walk into the doctor's office where she shouldn't have been walking yet and sit down and the doctor has this form and he, he's like, well, as I'm reading this chart, I don't know why you're alive. And my beautiful wife says, well, Jesus healed me. And uh, he didn't believe that. <laughs> Wasn't part of his belief system at all. He said, uh, yeah, so like I'm saying, I don't know why you're alive. <laughs> but you're here. You see, God brought her from death to life. God carried her to a place that she couldn't have gotten on her own. Only he could have done that. Only God could have done that. And so how do we respond to that? How do we respond to a God that sacrifices himself to take us over the bar that we couldn't get over by ourselves? And honestly, this past week I've been praying, God, if, if this is true, why don't I always remember it? God, if this is true, why don't I live that way? Why don't I always believe that? Well, there's certain responses that we need to take. The first, I think, is, is worship. I think it's, it's the happy dance, which I will not perform for you. It's this, this just love of just adoration for the sacrifice that was made. And the accepting of that sacrifice, putting your faith in that sacrifice. I cannot do this on my own. I can't get over this standard on my own. I trust in your sacrifice that carries me. I put my faith in that. And then 
just this life of confession. We're, we're called to confession. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for these things that I've done. And the team's gonna come out in a minute and lead us in a time of confession. And I, and I just wanna clarify something for you. There's, when you confess, you're not confessing after you have received by faith the sacrifice of Jesus. You are not confessing for your position anymore, right? You don't need positional forgiveness, if you will, because the work has been done. Your position is secure. Your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. When Jesus said, on the cross, it is finished, it was finished. So when you sin, it doesn't change your position, all right? What it does, though, is it changes relationship because you know that in a relationship, there can be friction and there can be tension, right? Think parent-child again. If your child does something wrong, their position doesn't change, right? But the relationship can change. So we're called to this lifestyle of confession consistently. God, thank you. I can't do it on my own. And we don't seek out every sin in order to punish ourselves. We seek these out and confess these things to strengthen that relationship with God. Our position hasn't changed and we want that relationship to be healthy. Because of that sacrifice, he carried us to that place, and he wants us to respond in those ways.